Who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair, yep. his ice-cold demeanor, and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast that takes an in-depth look at the films of action legend Dolph Lundgren. I'm your host Sean and today's another special interview episode. This time chatting with the notorious and outspoken director, Uva Boll. But before we get to the conversation, I want to remind you all that if you're not subscribing to the show, please do so. Also, if you're feeling so inclined, uh, please feel free to leave a review for the show, especially those five-star reviews. Those always help. We are on all the major podcasting apps, including SoundCloud, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, and CastBox. Uh, also, please check out the Facebook page for the show, I Must Break This Podcast. Here you can stay up to date on the show as well as get in contact with me regarding ideas, suggestions, etc. So to everyone out there who is already following the page and sharing it, uh, thank you for being a fan. Uh, you can also check out the official webpage for the show, imustbreakthispodcast.wordpress.com. So with that out of the way, now on to today's episode. Uh, this interview was the ultimate treat. <laughs> I don't know how much of an introduction this man needs, but anyone who knows film and has at least been on the internet within the past decade knows of the notorious, outspoken, talented, and enigmatic personality that is Uva Boll. Uva Boll is a writer, director, and producer who is amazingly prolific over the years. From 1992 to 2016, Boll directed 33 films and has over 53 producing credits to his name. As many are aware, uh, Uwe Boll gained his notoriety in 2003 when he directed the video game adaptation House of the Dead. This led Boll to directing numerous other video game adaptations, thus pissing off video game fans all over, and eventually giving him the title Worst Director Ever. In 2006, Boll decided to face his critics head-on, and challenged them to a boxing match in Vancouver, where he pummeled four of his harshest critics back-to-back. -back. Clearly, Uwe Boll is not one to sit back and take negativity without at least speaking his mind and sharing his side of the story. I honestly think that he has done what so many directors and figures in the entertainment industry have dreamt of doing, uh, just did not have the guts to do. Uh, outside of his video game adaptations, Bull went on to write, produce, and direct other more dramatic fare, including Attack on Darfur, Tunnel Rats, and Assault on Wall Street, proving that he's far from being the worst director ever. If anything, I honestly think that he could be one of the most misunderstood directors ever. In 2016, Uwe Bull decided to step away from the movie business, and he opened a German fine dining restaurant in Vancouver, known as the Bauhaus, where he's received some of his best critical reviews to date. In this discussion, Bowl and I discuss his methods of financing and selling his movies, the famous boxing match where he took on his critics, and what led him to finally move away from the film industry and build his restaurant. We also discuss his 2011 collaboration with Dolph Lundgren, In the Name of the King 2, where Dolph played a present-day karate instructor who's whisked away to medieval times to battle an evil king. Regardless of how you feel about Uwe Boll, you've got to respect and appreciate his tenacity and drive. Boll is one who truly loves movies, and while he may be retired in a sense, I don't think we've heard the last of him. Like I said, I've, I've always had uh, such a fascination with the guy. I've listened to quite a few of his commentaries, so getting to speak to him uh, in person was uh, truly a privilege and a treat. Uh, so, with that out of the way, uh, for your listening pleasure is my conversation with Dr. Uva Boll on I Must Break, this podcast. Well, cool. Well, um, yeah, like I said, I've been a, uh, a fan of yours, well, since 2003. It was pretty much House of the Dead that kind of put you on my radar as well as so many others, uh, <laughs> so many other people's radar. So, uh, yeah, like I said, I've listened to virtually all of your director's commentaries and interviews and everything. I think you are... Uh, 
a fascinating individual. So this is the ultimate treat, you taking the time to speak with me. Yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. So I, I guess if it's okay, I was, I was going to ask you real quick. You're now a restaurant owner and everything, and you've stepped away from the film business. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I uh, basically uh, um, had to step away because we have now a situation where you the independent movies, in a way, uh, uh, they don't exist anymore. Uh, so you know, like, so you have you have not the possibility um, to just make a movie like in the earlier years, and you sold it around the world to different uh, independent distributors in the countries. Now you have like uh, Amazon or Netflix, Hulu. They basically dominate the whole world and destroyed blockbuster DVDs, Blu-rays. They all doesn't exist anymore, and with them. Uh, the independent distribution system went down the drain. So, uh, like the American film market uh, is basically completely dead. The Cannes film market is completely dead. So, um, and um, so that is, that is the sad story about it, about like independent movies. And uh, so, basically, now if Netflix or Amazon, whatever, don't give you the money to do it uh, before then you cannot shoot the movie. And I mean, I'm trying since years uh, to propose things to to Amazon, Hulu, Netflix, whatever, and uh, to hopefully get something going uh, uh, with them. But uh, so far, I was not successful. Let's say it this way, you know. So, uh, and and that is the thing why I don't make movies anymore. The the restaurant idea came up uh, years ago i missed german food in vancouver i missed like well, also like high-end german food in vancouver and so it was for me in a way during the film career was winding down i felt like okay uh, let's do something else let's let's open a restaurant with with something I actually like uh, to do and to eat and so on and so that turned into a full-on like adventure and job so you it's like the idea that you can just open a restaurant and you you walk away and you come from time to time to eat uh, didn't work out so i'm very very active also my wife with the day to day management and um otherwise you you basically have no chance at all to make any money uh in a restaurant well yeah that's what i was going to say is i mean the restaurant business i know is also extremely difficult but i mean you seem to be really thriving in this i mean Arguably, I, I think you've gotten some of the best reviews in your career uh, thanks to this restaurant. So congratulations. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Uh, so I got I got definitely better uh, uh, better reviews for the restaurant as I <laughs> as I got for my movies. So uh, from this point of view, it's definitely a success. But I mean, advantage uh, with the movies, of course, is you make a movie and uh, you basically um, are done. So you sell the movie that is done, right? So, but a restaurant is like uh, everyday drama, you know. So, so you basically uh, have the whole time uh, people to manage, uh, and you have a lot of things like whatever bartender stealing, you, you know, like all, all this kind of stuff. You have you have all the time, and that is uh, um, it's not so easy. So it's a, it's a lot of work uh, on the day to day routine, also controlling the crew. Uh, to continue with a with a restaurant, yeah. Do you do you ever see yourself stepping behind the camera again at one point? Because I like to think, you know, I watched the uh, the documentary um, about you that that I think yeah. is is awesome. And the lead who starred in uh, a Blubberella, she said something that I thought was uh, uh, you know so apt is that you're not really retired, but you are more or less hibernating. Do you see yourself stepping behind the camera again? Yeah, I mean, there are always, uh, uh, you, you know, actors are always a little, uh, let's say, uh, uh, disillusionary. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, they think, like, I can just make movies whenever I want, and uh, that is just not the the reality. I mean, the reality is, uh, if you now shoot a movie and you think you have a bidding war after between all the streamers and uh, you, you, you double your money then you're basically blind to the facts. And um, that is the thing why I'm not so optimistic that I make a movie again. Yes, I'm kind of hibernating. I still have ideas. I still want to do stuff. But it's not like uh, uh, easy, 
You know, it's not like uh, realistic that I will make another movie. I don't know. I hope so, but uh, uh, I, I really don't know if, if it's uh, if it's realistic. So, I mean, that is the thing, you know. So we have to, uh, you always have to adjust to, to reality. And uh, the reality is that uh, there will be maybe no more Uwe Ball feature film. You know, so maybe I, I mean, I produced uh, right now, we're in post-production, a documentary about uh, the drug addiction in Vancouver and the homeless crisis in Vancouver. So different, uh, totally different um, way to make a movie, way cheaper, of course, to do a documentary as a feature film. And I think it's an important subject matter. That means it's... uh, um, worse to do it and it was really because my restaurant is in the east side in Vancouver downtown where a lot of uh, people dying uh, on fentanyl and overdoses so I felt like personal involved in it and I wanted to do it so I produced that documentary uh, what will be maybe finished in January February so um, so I, I tried to stay in the film industry I tried to do things um, but do I know that it will work out I don't know speaking in regard to the uh to those streaming services, you know, it, it's interesting because yeah, you bring up a lot of good points. You know, I was talking about this the other day with uh, with a couple colleagues, and you know, it seems like Netflix and Hulu and all these you know sites. This is where people nowadays are getting their content, which is fine and all, but they are, in my opinion, missing out on tons of amazing content. I mean, if you look at Netflix, for example, they really don't have a heck of a lot from like before 1995, and so as a result, they're missing out on so many you know, seminal classics of, uh, of cinema, in my opinion. Yeah, and also uh, yeah, classics, yes, and but also this kind of, you know, when everybody said we, who wants DVDs, who wants Blu-rays, it's now basically you have like 1% of the market is only left with collectors, you know, like yeah. they collect stuff. But you also, I mean, try to find postal right now, right? So uh, uh, you will not find it. You find it maybe on iTunes somewhere or still on Amazon, some DVDs you can buy. But overall, there are a lot of movies uh, in, from the last 30 years and also, as you said, classics like uh, where's the John Ford Westerns or whatever, right? So where these things disappear and they, they are not on streaming services always available. Right. And I think to said when we said goodbye to the VHS and then we said, said goodbye to the DVD and now we're saying goodbye to the Blu-ray uh, means also that your personal uh, film library dwindles away and our, our kids or the uh, upcoming generations, for them, only the movies exist who are on that streaming services. And it's, it's an illusion to think that the whole film history is available. It's not. There will be thousands of, of uh, absolutely classics or important movies where I grew up with will be not existing on that streamers and, and they will be uh, disappearing out of film history. And, and so also out of like this kind of film education when you, when you, when you see movies like, like a historian too. So I, I, see, I think it's, it's a very bad thing. And uh, I mean, I had various times it started with you have your hard drive, you tape all kinds of stuff on your hard drive, then your hard drive d- uh, dies, and then the the the, the, the AT and T or Telus guy uh, or you know or Bell guy, whatever they're coming, and they exchange your hard drive for free, but all your shit is gone because yeah. it's not in the cloud somewhere. So now everything you taped for like five years, uh, uh, you know, each episode of Breaking Bad or whatever you taped, it's gone too. Like, and it's, it's irreplaceable. So uh, it means it's gone. So, and then th- the same happens with movies. Uh, if you think they're always in the cloud or always available somewhere, I don't think so. But now, yeah, they're, they're a different subject matter. But what I see with Netflix, for example, is you have some excellent doku series you have some excellent feature series like Narcos, El Chapo, uh, uh, The Money Heist. Like there are a lot of Ozark. There are a lot of shows I really like on, on Netflix. But when you go to the individual movies, I think most of them are total crap. And it's because Netflix just gives stars money. 
You know, they, they Adam Sandler wants to make a movie, they just give him 20, 30 million bucks and he shoots a movie. Will Smith wants to make a movie, they give him 20, 30 million bucks or 80 million bucks and he makes a movie. And and most of that movies running running there, are, uh, most of them I saw at least, uh, are really bad. They're the worst movies these people ever did. And and uh, uh, there is a reason why nobody produced all that other movies before from the major companies because the major companies uh, analyzing the movies better before and like like Fox or Universal and so on and they 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 didn't greenlit Bright with Will Smith you know or other stuff where you think like. I don't know why. Why they shot that movie? It's total crap. And and uh, so I think the individual products are horrible. The, the same like with with Amazon. You know, like Amazon, they make maybe one or two good movies a year, and the rest is completely average crap. And uh, uh, um, a lot of things because they're free. You know, and then they, I think also uh, they are totally dead wrong in saying something is a huge success because. 50 million people watched it the first weekend on, on Netflix. Yeah, of course, it's free. You know, that means yeah. not that somebody would pay the, the, uh, most of the Netflix movies would make no box office whatsoever. And and uh, nobody goes in this kind of movies and would pay like 12 bucks and then and park the car and buy popcorn. So most of the Netflix movies, uh, yes, they have maybe a high uh, viewer rate, but but so would be basically any movie. You know, I mean, uh, it's like uh, whatever movie you feature on Netflix and you promote the shit out of it and it's on new releases for three weeks straight. When you when you open Netflix, it's the first thing that comes up. Of course you click it on. Of course you watch it. But how many people finish it? How many people don't do the uh, fast forward button in between? Or how many, how many people just scroll through it and think like, oh my God, I forget it. So, uh, you know, and, and I think theatrical movies, I have a different kind of uh, uh, need need to have a, a more quality uh, and uh, um, people feel it more like it, it's worth it to to pay money for it or not. So and and I think most of the streamers totally fail in delivering that product. Well, looking at your film career, I mean, you did a good handful of movies before you finally got mainstream attention and heat in 2003, thanks to uh, House of the Dead. So yep. if we look at House of the Dead. How did that particular project come about and come your way? Yeah, I mean, I just did Heart of America, a movie about school violence, about the Littleton School Massacre, and I think it's a very good movie. It was also, I think, the first real uh, uh, part for Elizabeth Moss, who's now the lead in Handmaid's Tale and then end. Uh, she played there one of my lead characters, and uh, but it flopped. It bombed like nothing happened to the movie. And then Mark Altman approached me with the script to House of the Dead. They, he wrote it already, and he said, I have the rights, so um, if you want to make the movie and you get the financing for the movie, um, we basically sell it to you, the script and the Zega, the contract with Zega. So we did the movie, and I think I, I put a lot of things in the movie in what the fans first hated, but, I mean, in retrospective now, I think I did a lot of things in a lot of my movies. Now they turned into mainstream. Now they turn into cool. You know, when I put in video game footage, like animation footage in House of the Dead, everybody was losing it on me. And now yeah. you have it like in every second movie, they use animation sequences and stuff like this. So I used the Matrix setup, like that uh, turntable shots. In, uh, I mean, a lot of things in House of the Dead, especially the, the script, what was not from me was cheesy. But uh, I, I think with the action sequences and so on, I did a good job to uh, to have a non-stop uh, ride there. Right? I mean, I mean, it's not a boring movie. So um, and it, it financially it worked very well. Artisan at that point was very happy with the theatrical release. The DVD was massive. It sold around the world. Um, and so I felt at that point, okay. Uh, let's continue with video game based movies uh, because there is a marketing effect in it. It's a, it, unknown properties. People have they have fans, and even if like maybe some hardcore fans are extremely uh, negative about it, uh, we can live with it. Uh, but we definitely make movies uh, people can watch. Also, if they never played Blood Rain, 
or Far Cry. Or the, so it, it, it never made for me any sense to make a movie based on a video game what only the, video, the people that played the video game actually understand. Uh, I, I had to tell the stories in a way that uh, even without any knowledge that the movie is about a video game uh, or video game based uh, that, that people still can enjoy it just as a movie. Well, and I mean, yeah, talk about that. That was a really keen uh, business decision on your behalf because, yeah, you noticed that there was a market for um, those video game adaptations. So, yeah, I think it was what after House of the Dead, you decided, okay, I'm going to make this kind of my niche in being the uh, the the video game uh, person. How did you go about in acquiring all of those video, or excuse me, all those various video game properties? Yeah, I mean, there were like various, uh, diff- like every every game movie had a different story. So we had like on Alone in the Dark, for example, it was a, a, a German guy who was involved in video games who made the contact uh, to Atari Infograms at that point. And then uh, um, we met in, in Los Angeles where the Atari still had a studio. And at that point, they worked on a, on a new Alone in the Dark game. And they showed me um like uh, where they stand with the game and so i hired uh, alan maste who who is now actually a, a star writer his last book was sold for 1.2 million dollars to amy pascal so also there i picked in a way somebody as a writer who uh, has talent and and will will be big um but uh, his his uh, script i think had a lot of flaws and then we went over it with, with different writers. Um, but my main problem was that then Atari dropped the game, and the, the, that game never came out together with what the plan. It comes out of uh, Alone in the Dark Part 5. Uh, the plan was comes out with the movie together. And I had Lionsgate all excited about it. And then Atari dropped out um, the whole Atari Infograms company in a way. Uh, at that point, came, was in a huge limbo. And so my my movie came out, and then everybody said, "What has the movie to do besides its Edward can be in it? What what has the movie to do with the with the game?" And I said, "Yeah, <laughs> uh, the game is not finished." And uh, so, and I had to take the fall for it, basically. So I think the the worst reviews from all of my movies were Alone in the Dark. And um, but also there, when you when you watch it now. Uh, I don't mind the movie. Yes, Tara Reid was a miscast, totally, right? So, but also there, I think Stephen Dorff, Christian Slater did uh, did a good uh, job, and uh, there was a lot of great action sequences in. Um, so I'm I'm not totally like uh, I think I said that also in a documentary about me. Um, there is not one movie I did what I totally despise, you know, where I say like, oh my God, I'm so ashamed that I did the movie. Um, no, it's not. All the movies have, uh, I know that Alone in the Dark and House of the Dead, Blood Rain are not the best movies I made. I made better movies, but I know also that I try to deliver for action fans and uh, a lot of a lot of uh, good stuff in that movies. And um, that is the reason I'm not like, ashamed of alone in the dark basically yeah do, do you ever i mean I, I imagine you know they always say you know hindsight is always twenty twenty, right i mean do you ever look back and think okay if you had not done the video game adaptations and you had just gone right you know right into the serious stuff because i mean after your video game adaptation movies you started doing some real think pieces like um darfur and stoic and assault on wall street if you had started with films like that and avoided the video game route do you think things might be different or you might have had you know a, a different route uh yeah yes and no right so i maybe would never get worse reviews or the golden raspberry but on the other hand i would also maybe be completely unknown i would maybe be never maybe i would made not 32 movies as a director maybe i would did 15 or 18 the, the financing uh, was a key issue for me. I never, I never had the luxus to have an agent manager in Hollywood taking care of me or pushing me, and I got director jobs because of whatever Steven Spielberg needed a director for something. It never happened. So I, 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 I'm self-made. That means also I raised the money, I sold the movies, and all the private investors I had 
they said, we are not giving you any more money for any, like after Heart of America failed, uh, for drama. So we, you, uh, look, House of the Dead actually made money. Keep going with it. And besides, uh, Alone in the Dark uh, uh, didn't make a lot of box office, but all that movies made an enormous amounts on DVD. And uh, so the investors, in a way, even with Blood Rain in the name of the king, whatever, they were happy uh, to invest in the video game-based movies. And that allowed me to have bigger distribution, have theatrical distribution, uh, have stars, um, bigger budgets. So I don't regret that I did it. But of course, as a chance to be, as a filmmaker, accepted and be in whatever A-list art house festivals or nominated for prizes everywhere, I uh, if I would never made that movies and would just trade the Dafur or Stoic, Assault on Wall Street, Rampage, uh, maybe my career would be totally different. Or my or I said the the, the career would be very short. And uh, very fast over. So, you know, that is the thing. It's like uh, uh, whatever you do, you do you do it wrong, right? So that that is the thing. So, but I don't regret it. I think it was a good decision because it made me also financially stable. Uh, so I could do Dafur. You know, like I could do Dafur and lose like three million dollars on it without being bankrupt. And um, I think that that is. Was was a good thing. I would love to make keep going, making movies, the political matter, and so on. But as I said, now you don't have that forty, fifty uh, outlets anymore. You can sell worldwide too. They're all gone. So now you you meet Netflix, and then they tell you, yeah, we buy it. We give you one hundred fifty thousand bucks for the whole movie for the whole world. You know, and then then you're fucked because what you want to do, you have to you have to say yes because there's no other buyer. So uh, and that is why I don't shoot the movie. So, no, yeah, but I mean, it's it's really um, in retrospective, you need every, you know everything better, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. and of course, I would spend more money and more time in developing uh, developing the scripts better. I would never cast a Tara Reid again. I, you know, if I see a would 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 see now a problem with an actor or an actor doesn't fit in, I would never cast them. It doesn't matter if they have a value, sales value. I would never do it again. So I I would totally learn from my mistakes. But would I never did video game based movies? No, I think I would did them. Definitely, I would try to make them better, but uh, uh, I, I would definitely did that, did that movies. Well, one of the many things I've always admired about you, as have many. I mean, let's face it. I think uh, I think you know you, you say what uh, so many in the film industry are you know want to say and are thinking, but just don't have the the guts to do. But um, I love how you started taking your critics to school, and there I'm curious. There, there had to be a point in your filmmaking career where you just decided, you know what, I'm tired of taking this negativity. I'm going to start challenging my critics head on. What was that point? I mean, there, there had to be that, that turning point, if you will. Was there? Uh, definitely. And it was uh, that uh, Blood Rain basically got the same reviews as Alone in the Dark. And uh, um, I felt like whatever I do, I now get like 1% positive reviews. And uh, I feel... That, that all my video game-based movies also are really different from each other. I mean, what, what should be uh, the, Anderson, say, like the guy who did Resident Evil, he did basically the same movie over and over again, but I didn't. So I did totally different movies. I did, like, Blood Rain is a vampire movie, classic, like Dracula, shot in Romania, uh, in original castles with Ben Kingsley, totally uh, world stars in it, and I get the same reviews like I shot House of the Dead or I shot Alone, uh, or Alone in the Dark, and I felt like that is so stupid that people don't even watch my movies anymore. They just, they just trashed me, and I was so mad with it. I felt okay. If you want to destroy it, if you like on a on a vendetta against Uwe Ball, that make sure Uwe Ball never shoots a movie again. Okay, let's uh, then let's let's meet in the ring and fight. And uh, based on my my boxing history that I boxed when I when I was younger uh, in a in a club, I I was not scared to go in the ring. 
I still had to, yeah, you know, I I felt like bring it on, but but at the same time, it's also when after people said, he hit us and whatever, right? A, I told everybody it's a real boxing fight. Everybody got the mouse guard, the headgear, they had to sign a waiver, all that stuff. And you cannot have like a thousand people watching a boxing fight and then you dance around and you you just don't fight. Uh, So everybody was aware it's, it's real boxing. And on the other hand, uh, when everybody said, oh, yeah, because you can box, you know you will beat them up, uh, I have to say, wait a second, I never saw that people till they arrived in Vancouver. So I would be also in the ring if somebody would be 200 kilograms and two meters tall, I, I basically uh, blind picked that four riders uh, uh, and had no clue. So I felt like, uh, you know, I was also in a little health risk here, and I also had to box four people at one in one night, after one after the other, and that is very exhausting. Even beating people up is exhausting, you know. Like so, that is the thing, and I had no clue how good are they, how heavy they are, how tall they are, how strong they are. So, uh, uh, and uh, then also there, of course, everybody gave me only shit that I won the boxing fights. And, uh, you know, it's like whatever I, I was doing, uh, people uh, turned it against me. But I got a lot of feedback also from, even from Ron Howard, uh, who said he, he he would love to beat up the critics like I did. So, uh, <laughs> so I think I fulfilled a dream from a lot of, uh, a lot of directors, uh, what they would love to do with other people. Most definitely. Well, I know on the business side of things, in 2011, this is, this is something that I thought from a business strategy was, was pretty wise on your behalf. So in 2011, you made the most of your budgets by filming two movies back-to-back using virtually the same sets and cast. So it was Blood Rain 3 and then Blubberella. Like I said, I always admired this strategy because it seemed very practical from a financial standpoint. But I, at the same time, I imagine it had to be extremely stressful doing two movies at once, was it? Yeah, and and you yeah. see it in the documentary, like that "fuck you all" over ball documentary from Sean Stroll. I think it was a very good one because also Lindsay Hollister says it in it. It it uh, we were running out of time, and it it uh, that was very hard for everybody. And then it's very frustrating, of course, for the comedy version uh, people because. They were waiting and waiting and waiting uh, so that we were done with the with the real blood rain film so a lot of things we a lot of things we were winging it basically and and uh that was not good for the overall quality so I think blood blubberella has maybe thirty five forty minutes they're actually really funny and hilarious and totally absurd and then you have another forty five minutes that are uh, <laughs> dump and shit. And you know, so. Uh, but I had to. I had to focus on the real Blood Rain film, um, the Blood Rain three film, because that is where I got the money for. You know, like that other film was basically a freebie, uh, bonus picture. And uh, if the the Blood Rain three was pre-sold, like to to Universal and Fox and for DVD rights everywhere and so on, and that was uh, if if that movie would completely sucked. Uh, they would not pay me. So I had to basically have 80% of the shooting time or 85% on Blood Rain and 15% on Blue Varela. Uh, yeah. But the, I, the overall idea, I, I still think is good. It's clever. You know, it's like a, a Roger Corman style where you just think like, how can I use that situation for something else? You know, for example, take the Darfur film. Uh, we should have a documentary team on the set of my Darfur movie, and not making a making of, but making a documentary about all the refugees we had in the movie, what what they really like, what, what they went through to end up in South Africa, where we shot in the slums, basically, where we picked them really out of the slums uh, because they had to run away in in Sudan in, from Darfur. So uh, that would be a great documentary. And and it would be cheap during the the shooting of my movie uh, uh, to to do another documentary film about what actually happened in Darfur, what happened in Sudan, where are all the displaced people, 
uh, all spread all over Africa. They lost family members and so on. And it would be great interviews. It would be a great documentary. Easy to shoot during our uh, Darfur film. But we didn't did it. And uh, so that is where I feel a lot of times opportunities uh, were not used where we could make additional also money, like a good product, but also making money on it. So, yeah. Well, one film that I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about is In the Name of the King 2, starring Dolph Lundgren. You know, I was curious how this particular project came about. When you filmed the first Dungeon Siege movie, were they intended as a trilogy, or how did that, uh, how did that work? No. Uh, it was just like the, the first one was a big movie. It got out theatrical in a lot of countries, and it actually... Uh, in U.S. it was not successful, but in other countries it was actually uh, successful in the movie theaters. Uh, and um, so people were asking for uh, another part, another another uh, another installment. But uh, Jason Statham at that point wanted six million for a movie, uh, so he went up at the in the salary enormously, and we just I, it was just impossible to finance another movie with Jason Statham. So I felt, okay, let's do it more for direct-to-DVD. Let's find somebody else, uh, and we move in the future. We, we, um, we have a totally different concept. We don't try to, with totally different actors, to just follow up on the first one. And um, so that, that is why Dolph Lundgren came in the game. I know him, of course, as everybody else, as a more like stoic kind of big guy from the Rocky movies and everything. And uh, so it was an opportunity to work with him. He's a very intelligent person. Uh, and and uh, we had a lot of political discussions on set and so on. Um, yeah, we 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 did the, the movie then together, you know. And then, I mean, I look at the, in the Name of the King 3 with Dominic Purcell, a totally different jump again. Um, and, uh, yeah, so... Uh, basically, we did three totally different in the name of the King movies. They're not really connected uh, to each other. So you kind of touched upon it already, but uh, what was it like having uh, someone like Dolph on set, especially compared to the, the the first action lead, Jason Statham? I mean, these are two big action guys. How did they uh, How did they differ in terms of directing them? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the main difference was that Dolph is really like kind of uh, um, older and handy, a little handicapped with running, and, and so he cannot move so much anymore. So uh, Jason Sesson was top fit, and I mean, he twisted his ankle in, in King One, and they taped him, and two days later he was doing a f like flips again. So that was a totally different kind of uh, action ability between Sesson and, and Dolph Lundgren. But uh, Lundgren is still like a heavyweight karate and boxing guy and you see that in the dojo gym in the in the second part where he's doing a very good job so um both are in a way very easy to work with but as i said like lundgren was a little more like handicapped in the movements we had a body double running for him through the forest and stuff like this when the dragon <laughs> comes uh, and, and Stasem basically he had a stunt double too, but 85% of everything what is required, he he could do. But it was very nice to work uh, with both of them. Uh, uh, I always said, like in the name of the king, was one of the most positive uh, experiences of my life with shooting a movie. Like every actor, like Ron Perlman, uh, Lily Zubieski, everybody was on it. Claire Folani. We had a great relationship. We had a lot of fun on set and. Um, it was the biggest movie I ever did, the biggest budget. Uh, so it was, it was, it was totally worth it to, to have like four months there of, of, uh, of, of shooting. Well, you've been fortunate to work with quite a few name actors over the course of your career. And I, I won't ask you about every single one of them. I mean, because I mean, my goodness, you've directed Oscar winners and, you know, everybody in between, but going back to the first dungeon siege movie, uh, the one actor who I do have to ask about is Burt Reynolds. What was it like directing a uh, legend like him? Yeah, I mean, uh, he he comes as a legend also. I mean, <laughs> now sadly he's dead, but uh, it, it it was not easy because he had like he was already older and he had enormous back pain always. I mean, he started as a stuntman 
um, I think it was, it was just done, right? So, um, in a way, so the, the fighting stuff was not easy. We had that scene where he had to, uh, his last shooting day where he had to sword fight and uh, he passed out. It was so hot under his uh, armor and then he passed out and the stunt people catched him before he hit the ground. Um, and uh, I remember also, like, I wanted to have a dinner with him and then he, I, I went to the hotel and then he didn't came out because there were like paparazzi uh, photographers, and he he said I'm not I'm not coming out. And uh, so I said, yeah, okay, what does that mean? Like, should I come up in your room, eat there, or what? And he said, no, uh, we do it another time. So <laughs> I went alone to the Italian place where I reserved the table for us. So, uh, but on set he was a, a team player, and easy uh, also also like easy going. He tried to deliver. But he was requesting, of course, from everybody and also from the from the uh, from the crew respect. I mean, and I totally understand that he had this private assistant with him. And uh, for example, the, the scene where he dies, I I had tears in my eyes. I think it's a it's a great scene. And he told me, "Oh, we are aware that this is the only time I died in the movie." And I said, I actually have no idea at all. I thought you died a hundred times. I mean, I, you know, I mean, he made so many movies. I felt like, and I, I never really controlled it. Or I never really double-checked that. But he said that is the first film I died on the camera. And he said it's very important for me. And uh, so, and I think it's a great scene. And then, and then they totally trashed him. The 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 reviews they trashed Burt Reynolds and so on. I think he did a very good job in uh, in the name of the king. And now, yeah. But it's only my personal uh, opinion. Yeah. Well, of all your films, all 32 of them, are there any that, that stand out to you as personal favorites, either, either because you just think they're the best made or maybe the, the experiences on set were, you know, um, so pleasurable that uh, they stand out? I mean, there, there has to be, if you had to pick, like, the, the top two, what would those be? Um. It's, it's tough choices, right? So I think emotionally, the best film I ever did was Darfur, because nobody can watch that film without being completely devastated after, like completely crashed down and, and um, what they do with the people uh, there. The massacre is uh, unbearable, uh, I, and I think it's overall a very good film um, that I, I, re I really like Darfur. And uh, I really like the Rampage trilogy. So I, I, I think Rampage, the trilogy, you have to see Rampage similar to like Boyhood or something. Uh, it's like one movie. We really tell, it's different to In the Name of the King 1, 2, 3 or Blood Rain 1, 2, 3. Here we have uh, the story of Bill Williamson, who is a terrorist and a killer, but we follow his life from a teenager to his end. And uh, uh, and I, I like I like Brendan Fletcher in it. He's he's a great actor uh, doing it. But also I think that um, the whole thing from first he, he basically kills tons of people in part one to make money. Then he disappears with the money. Then he's in hiding. Then he turns into kind of a una bomber kind of character uh, uh, who kills uh, uh, way more people. And in the end, the president before he gets killed himself. I think it's a it's a very political story, a very concrete story, and uh, I, uh, I I love Rampage. I, I think that it's it's also from the uh, subject matter maybe the the most important stuff I filmed, and um, especially now, you know, I mean, look at the White House now, look at uh, um, where we're standing now on the on the on the planet Earth basically, and that nihilistic approach from Bill Williamson. When you when you uh, watch Rampage Two, I mean Rampage Two was now seven or eight years ago shot, you know, and when when he says uh, that uh, we were doomed, like we have too many people on the planet, uh, we we used all the resources, and we're completely going down the drain. It's only a question of time. Uh, all of that is in Rampage. In Rampage, he, all, he said basically exactly everything. What what now comes more and more into into everybody's mind that the the idea of unlimited 
economic growth and population growth worldwide leads us into the direct end of the world. And, and I mean, for any logical person, uh, you you would uh, that is the thing. The absurdity of industrial revolution, and we started building a middle class, and we started having factories, and we started having cars and airplanes and, and ships, and it made the life from all of us so much better. But at the same time, it's this kind of let's say you have a classroom and you have like. 25 kids in a classroom and one teacher and and you every year add five kids and then at one point you have a classroom with like 5,000 kids and one teacher and you have no school anymore everything breaks apart and everybody is completely uh, over the hill basically right nobody will learn anything anymore in even in a classroom with 150 kids and one teacher so and I think that is what we did with the planet that is basically, and we continue to do it, and uh, uh, we're basically, <laughs> basically really fucked. And I think that that Bill Williamson shows this, and he says it in in Rampage. That is why I think the, that movies will be uh, at one point uh, real cult movies where people say, "Look, twenty years ago he said exactly how it will end." <laughs> Well, that's, uh, you know, that, that's the thing that I think is fascinating about your career. I mean, if you look at your entire filmography, you have, you know, some, some fun kind of goofy films such as Blubberella. You have some video game adaptations that are also fun. But then you also have some serious uh, uh, political films where you are, you know, obviously making statements that are, you know, near and dear to you. So, um, like I said, I admire that, and uh, I wish you nothing but the best of, uh, the best of luck with, with everything and all of your uh, future business endeavors. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that, yeah, that is. I mean, that is the thing. I'm, I'm always, I was always an, a realist, you know. And uh, I think in a documentary about me, uh, when in one of the interviews on the, on the uh, um, beach, I said also, my biggest asset is that I can see things at one point also in my disadvantage. So I'm not an illusionist in a way like that. I uh, you know, that I, that I keep going, keep going. You know, so many people, they are independent movie makers, they all went bankrupt, they're all their existence is basically destroyed and they're driving a taxi now. So people from the lower end movies, from the uh, low budget movies. And uh, I, I think one of my biggest assets is that I can see also things like coming up and happening in the future and I, I pull the plug at the right time. Uh, I could make after Rampage three more movies but then I would maybe lost my house, my restaurant, my family, and whatever in the end. Only that I want because I wanted to make more movies. So it's it's like a kind of a drug addiction to make films, right? So and then you feel like, uh, but but I'm also hard enough against myself to know maybe at one point uh, uh, the at one point maybe it changes in my direction. You know, maybe there will be at one point an Amazon executive or a Netflix executive have the same film taste like you and me and other people and um, you know it's it, and, and say look why not hiring ball now giving him a show why not he should shoot a movie like about uh, uh, whatever whatever subject matter it is uh, domestic terrorism or postal the tv series <laughs> you know like mm-hmm. that is the thing i'm i'm just waiting in a way that something positive happens with the decision makers. Uh, I mean, how many Terrence Malick movies they want to produce before before they finally recognize that Terrence Malick is shit? <laughs> you know, I mean, that is the reality. And, and uh, look at Paul Thomas Anderson. He did There Will Be Blood. He did Boogie Nights. I loved Paul Thomas Anderson. But look what happened the last few years with Paul Thomas Anderson. I mean, you have to say it crystal clear. Uh, it's crap. Yeah. The Phantom Menace with Daniel Day-Lewis was one of the worst pieces of shit I ever saw with one of the best actors. And and uh, the, the same people did There Will Be Blood, one of my favorite movies. But it looks like he ran out of, he had enough money to make one movie after the other, but they're all shit. And, and so why not somebody in all that decision-making uh, things like Ted Sarandos or whatever. Why they don't? Uh, why nobody of them is an Uwe Ball fan? Why they don't say, you know what, Assault on Wall Street was a great movie. 
about the bailouts. Why we're not making some more with Uwe Ball? He showed like he can do genre. He showed he can do action. But he showed also he has he has a real political uh, bite. Like like I'm able to make really gritty movies. And and uh, where are these movies today? And that is what I what I, why I support also like what Martin Scorsese said right about the Avengers stuff. It's not about the Avengers. They have great actors. They have great special effects. They are also individual. Uh, uh, a lot of the Marvel movies and, and so on, the individual very good movies. But what Mike Martin Scorsese uh, says, and that I 100% support, is it cannot be only this stuff now. You know, what? when I was young, there was like Star Wars, but that was one time every three years. And you were waiting of stuff like this. And and uh, uh, you know or, or ET and stuff like this. That, that were that was that was a real event. Now look at the box office. Look at the movies. We have sixty event movies a year, and that is just absurd bullshit. What's going on? And I think that is what also Martin Scorsese points out that it's just like uh, unacceptable that we're living now in a world. Where like Apocalypse Now or Goodfellas or The Goodfather or Taxi Driver or The French Connection would never exist again. They would never get made anymore. And that is the shame. And that is what he points out. And I'm 100% supporting this. That it's, it's a shame that uh, uh, we, we, we just don't have that kind of filmmaking anymore possible because the major studios are not making this kind of movies anymore. They want risk-free uh, Frozen 2, Frozen 3, Avengers 150. That is what they're doing, and that is crap. That it's, it's just too much. It would yeah, be nothing no, no. against it. You know, that is the thing. Like I've, I've, I mean, I have a lot of Spider-Man movies I enjoyed. I, I, I loved, uh, uh, of course, the Joker was, was not a master. I mean, the, the, the new Joker film, I think, has nothing to do with a superhero movie. That was really a great movie, like a, a taxi driver uh, under, the, <laughs> under the Marvel banner, basically. Yeah, so uh, uh, I, I, that was a great movie. But The Dark Knight with Heath Ledger was a great Batman film. But all that stuff... Doesn't it? It's not okay if you have Thor coming after Hulk, coming after Avengers, coming after Captain America, coming after Captain Marvel, and then comes the Wonder Woman, and it's just too much. It's ridiculous. Well, your restaurant is obviously doing extremely well. Um, if I am ever in Vancouver, I would love to uh, come in and hopefully have a beer with you if uh absolutely if, if you're not too busy so <laughs> no don't worry like email me then when you come in and yeah send me a, um, a link or something to the interview and um yeah and we go from there well this has been an absolute pleasure mr bull um like i said i've been a huge fan um best of luck to you and uh you have a, a happy holidays thank you okay bye. same for you bye bye, bye, -bye.